Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's show, we're joined by Bradford William Davis. Bradford is an investigative reporter for Insider, like Business Insider, exploring race, class, and health in sports after spending a couple of years at the New York Daily News as a sports columnist. He's also done some big magazine pieces recently that we'll get into. This is the second in a two-episode series, both I would describe as baseball reporters who do a little bit more and who broaden the scope uh, of things when looking at the game. Bradford, uh, thank you for taking the time to join us. Yeah, well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So first of all, we ask everyone that uh, comes on with us a very basic question at the start. Can you tell us the story of your journalism path? I get into journalism. I mean, it was a long and winding road. I did uh, a lot of half of college. I did not think I wanted to do journalism. I thought that I was either going to work for a sports team because I was one of those dudes that read Moneyball and thought like, oh yeah, I could do that, right? And so I was actually working working towards an economics degree because I'd seen that all these post-Moneyball hires had degrees like that. I believe DOFC and an econ degree. Then I also was thinking about possibly doing finance because I paid me all the pay rent instead of make $28,000 a year. Um, or something like that indefinitely. And so with neither door really opening up, I just kind of graduated college and just kind of like took random jobs with startups, let's say. And it was probably because, frankly, I wanted like a fifth year college where I didn't have to wear a suit no more. And I was I was wearing suits so much from my internships and stuff. Like I was like, so I, I, I enjoyed the the perpetual uh, an eternal hoodie season that all these startup jobs gave me. One place I stuck particularly was at Squarespace, actually, the web building tool. Probably a lot of people here or writers are listening probably might have used that for make their own portfolios or something like that. But I was uh, on their uh, customer operations team, and I realized I had an act for kind of clearly communicating information, including via email, and started doing like some technical writing there. And yeah, and so that was like one kind of half of a, a nudge towards that. Then the other thing was realizing, I guess, I mean, I guess realizing that I wanted more out of my career. And I was like getting, I was grateful for the job at Squarespace to be clear, but I wanted more, right? And so I thought I would possibly pursue the thing I enjoy, which is writing. I didn't really know how to pursue it or what to pursue, but like I thought I would try. One way I thought that would be practical towards that would be actually looking for a job in technical writing full time, right? And just so that I'd be thinking about clarity, concision, grammar, stuff like that. That's why I was looking for, for that kind of work. And I ended up getting a, a salary technical writing job for another startup. This startup was, not to say Squarespace is completely functional, right? But this place is significantly more dysfunctional than Squarespace. You, you kind of see why, oh, here's why most startups fail. I was like, oh, because I was here. That was my introduction to that, that sort of adage or truism about the tech boom, right? And, and to end up laying me off, like after recruiting me three or four months in, like it was pretty frustrating. I don't have a job, <laughs> but I'm fortunate that I had some money in reserves. One of my really good friends, a wonderful, wonderful woman named Morgan Lee, had been really, really encouraging me to pursue like a writing project, creative writing project with her. She was, a, she happened to be a, a magazine editor and journalist herself, right? And so, uh, but she just wanted something to 
just be a, a change of pace, right, to a day job. And so I had been pushing it off because I'm sorry, I'm just too busy with the stuff I was doing. I was working like a lot of hours in it, like both jobs. But now I was like, I, had no, I didn't have that excuse no more. So, <laughs> um, so, more, so Morgan and I start, started a newsletter where we, started talk, where we started writing about sports and social issues. So we called it Balance There. We began brainstorming it and then we just kind of started it, right? Right around the time I started it, was, I'm not sure if it was exactly before or exactly after, but it was right around when Grantland closed in 2015, right? And so in New York City, there was like a, a party slash funeral for Grantland somewhere downtown Manhattan. And I heard about it and I, and I went. That night, I met a lot of people, people who I still consider like friends and encouragement to this day. So let's see, Jason Concepcion, who goes by, uh, goes by Network on Twitter. You might have heard of him, but he was, you know, a, a, a prolific Grant Lantern Ringer personality. He's, he's blown up. But yeah, Jason and then the person being Emma Stan, who some of y'all know was a sports illustrator, writer, and editor before. Now she's an athletic editor. She was like encouraging a lot, lot, lot of folks. <laughs> it was a, it was a good one, and and so that and so I was telling them about what I was doing, what I was hoping to do, and the people were willing to sign up for the newsletter that night. And so I had all these people who I really admired, respected their work, giving me feedback on on this newsletter. And that newsletter again, Fallon Fair, you know, which was again it was like a sports and sports and culture and social issues kind of. We it ended up being a, kind of a precursor to the column work that we mentioned at the top of this in New York Daily News, right? It was like me like thinking and and writing it in I guess an argument frequently and also editing my, my 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 partner morgan's work and she was editing my work she's a great editor she we we have an extremely good like sort of like working relationship where we can just kind of like argue with each other at two o'clock in the morning on the phone about what we should do for it and, and it's all love and it's all productive and everything and so she really helped me grow grow my skills and kind of communicating the message of, of a mind i have and that newsletter did well i mean like it was it was free it was like free sub stack where everyone's trying to you know make a buzz off the newsletter this is before that time where i was thinking about monetization it was really just like an outlet and and it, i was receiving such good feedback on it that it made me think like that perhaps this kind of work was a little more attainable between the, some of the readers we had as well as morgan's encouragement and stuff as well and and just honestly just a good feeling of, of being very proud of some of my clips there are still some of my favorites to this day so anyway, I, I started applying for jobs in, in the media world, which again, I did not think I'd be competitive for, but I ended up getting like a few rounds into an interview actually at a USA Today's for the Win blog. Again, with no experience in journalism or English or anything like that in, in, in college. The econ degree was actually a little more competitive, art perspective or whatever. I do a lot of research, but I was not upset at all that when they turned me down because the fact that they just called me back. <laughs> and uh, and kept on kept on talking to me it was like a really uh, to me just a really strong sign that okay I got something because I know this I know this world is working bad so for me to not have any creds creds or much of many bylines just these like clips from my blog my email blog <laughs> like that I was sending them it, it was very encouraging another place that uh, a friend you know, recruited me was a, a publication called Grady that was like a media startup that was based in Nashville uh, that that a friend of mine was already working there and as an editor and he you know recruited me and they kind of pitched themselves as being like the cross between like the next Grantland or, or what MTV News was at that time because MTV had hired a bunch of ex-Grantland folks to do this like culture and politics kind of stuff on top of just like high level music criticism and they, they ended up hiring me. It closed down five months later. So like it just history keeps repeating itself. I definitely had issues when I noticed like my checks coming in late. <laughs> and I'm yep. like, hmm, this is really strange. I started keeping my resume fresh and applying for other things, including actually a writing fellowship with the New York Film Festival. I'm so glad I did that. 
because for so many reasons, one of them being that about a week into develop writing fellowship, again, grading closed down. They gave me no zero severance, nothing. And so, but at least I had something to do and, and, and spend some time on, which was this, this writing, this critical writing fellowship that New York Film Festival offered. Uh, they call it, I think they call it the Critics Academy. And there I got to decide to screen lots of great movies. It was a great run that year. I think uh, Moonlight, that was the Moonlight year. And uh, Manchester by the Sea, two of my favorite films to, to this day, but also exposed me to all this different like, kind of cinema that I would, you know, never have like stumbled upon on my own, like, like a documentary on like French New Wave and stuff like that. It, it was really dope. I felt like such a dilettante, but like, when I was getting open, I was extremely encouraged by, by the people who would pick me for, you know, what I maybe wasn't competitive, but I think it was. And, and these really tr- tremendous film critics you know, who have seen literally 30 times the amount of movies I had at that point. <laughs> And just kind of be like, you got something, you know what I mean? And so, and through that was making more connections in, in, in this world. I eventually was able to get a writing internship. Two things happened around the same time. One was I got a write, I got an internship, like a journalism internship with uh, Vocative, blogging every day or writing, reporting. I had a story about a uh, North Carolina legislative you know session or something like that or 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 conversation around the removing the requirement for kids or for for kids to leave games that they have some sort of injury or including concussions like sports games like a high school level or or k-12 really i guess level sports sports games without and and and, uh, and they and they what they did was they took the power to remove kids from games from the qualified medical professionals that might be on hand for that to parents, which is like a horrible idea. And it was a GOP legislature, unsurprisingly, that, that uh, pushed that. And, and so I just kind of like did some reporting on it. It went viral. I think Rachel Nichols shared it on social media. She should have tagged me, but it's all good. And the, and the, and the uh, North Carolina actually um, reversed their, their stance on this, like within a day or something, like a day or two. Journalism right there. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. And it was, it was just because, like, my, my editor actually told me not to do the extra legwork, but I was like, I kind of think I should. So I'm going to get to my editor in a second, but I did that, and, and it helped. I had some really good colleagues there, too. Two of them, two names that you may be familiar with. One is Robert Silverman, the fantastic and prolific <laughs> writer and uh, investigative reporter. Much of it in the world of sports. So I think his last really big piece, though, was about a... Tim Pool, who's like a famous alt-right YouTuber, grifter type dude. But like he he did it while I was there. He did an amazing story about the NBA's uh, sex ed program and being like her horrifically regressive and often just forget it on a moral sense, but he just on a scientific basis. And I just so I got to kind of like see how his mind works and become and we become good friends. And Joe Lemire, I couldn't pronounce him wrong, Lemire or Lemire, but you know, he's 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 that sports techie now. But like he, the New York Times and lots of the places and his former Sports Illustrated guy himself. And, uh, and yeah, I had these two awesome people around me. And the, and so I left for two reasons. One was the other place I was interviewing with was actually HBO. And they were offering like much, much, much better wages than, than a journalism internship. And so I was like, you know, I have to think, of, I'll have to think about this for sure. And when they offered me a salary role and, and, and Vocative did not, I decided to do that. If I could have offered me a salary role, like I, I might have done that, but I'm so glad they did. I'm so glad they didn't because six weeks after I got, I left, Vocative closed down. The other, but yeah, HBO came through, right? I have this job that like pays my bills and gives me a whole lot of perks. I was working on their content strategy, content editorial content strategy team. 
so uh, a lot of my a lot of my projects were sports related, but I also got to do some non-sports stuff. So that's everything from boxing, right? Where I would be producing and editing and sometimes writing content for their boxing vertical. We had, we actually had a boxing blog where we produce some journals about the sport as long as head of course to the HBO connection to it. Kind of like the way right holders today have websites. That's kind of like yep. the idea of what we were doing and, and hard knocks and real sports and stuff like that, writing video scripts and all that, but also getting to do other programs like Random Acts of Flyness, for example, which won a Peabody and had some of the smartest, most brilliant people working on it as writers and actors and stuff or, or succession which is what the rage i got to work on the first two seasons ballers i had a lot of fun like on on, on that level like the beginning to interact with, with really smart people and and do work that i was pretty proud of at times right however i often describe hbo as kind of like the best version of a job i didn't want and the reason why mark is because I didn't like, I guess, I, I guess I didn't like the, the limitation of not being, not, of not having real editorial independence and ability to like really, I guess, critically engage the stuff I was working on. I mean, there was some parts of that, right? But it was all ultimately in the service of selling you HBO stuff, right? So even as I was doing journalistic-ish things at times for them. You wanted to be other, impactful. You know, yeah, yeah, and do, yeah, exactly. I wanted that, I missed that impact. And so I was like, I was, when, when they had closed down their boxing, the broadcasting, which was like in the end of 2018, I was, I was, I was definitely ready. I turned down the Daily News the first time they had actually reached out to me. An editor there had, who I'd known previously, we reached out for about a, like a desk editor, blogger kind of thing. I, I, I decided not to just because I wanted, I, I wasn't sure the Daily News was going to exist, exist much longer, frankly. Like, I had heard that I had, I, this was early 2019. So this is a few months after they had laid off literally half the staff, like kind of like the, the Thanos, Thanos snap from Avengers. That's what they did. And, and, and uh, the sports actually department got cut the worst. So I'm like, I don't want to be last in first out, but you know, I do appreciate even getting this far for a still, a still a prolific and high profile newspaper. Right. But then, but then flash forward to April of 2019 there was a, a situation that happened in baseball that week where the white Sox star tim anderson had gotten into a scuffle he had hit a big home run because it, it was actually early part of his breakout season he uh, flipped his bat pimped it out did his thing came back in the next but then the next at bat the pitcher a guy named brad keller threw at him and so words were exchanged they got i think benches might have clear they had, but the game continued otherwise normally however some suspensions were handed out keller got a suspension for a few days but Tim Anderson also got a suspension. And that was really curious to me because it seemed like he was just expressing himself like by flipping his bat and then he got penalized for being angry that he got hit. And then it was, that was already bad, but it was actually worse to me. He got suspended because he, because he had used what was described as a, as a racial slur, right? And he had said, he had said the N word. Tim, important, something important to remember for those who are unfamiliar, Tim Anderson is black, he's a young black man. And I'm not going to do, write, debate and defend N-word usage, but, but I'm just going to say Black people can use the N-word. And he wasn't using it like a Klansman or something like that. He was using it in the heat of the moment out of his anger, but not in a way, in, not in a racially derogatory way. Debate your mom. And so I was tweeting about that. And the, my former boss of the Daily News, but, you know, still trying to recruit me, was like, hey, you want to do this as a column for us? And so I did, I closed my work laptop, my real work laptop. Once I tried to try, try, just try to bang through all my work early, as early as possible, opened up my personal computer, went to a local bar, got some bourbon and a good burger. And I just kind of banged it out, <laughs> looking out the window and brought wherever, wherever the bar was and, and 
locked in for a few hours to, to finish the story. Dear friend of mine, the phenomenal Shakia Taylor, kind of helped me think through some stuff as we, as I was closing out my edits, and then uh, and I got good edits from the news. And it was a, a column that I feel I still again still feel very proud of, and it was about Tim Anderson and and his right to use use that use that word and how, and really ultimately how absolutely tone deaf Major League Baseball was to black players, black culture, that they would penalize this and not not use any sort of like contextual lens, you know, to get why this is different than than an actual act of racism. That column, you know, went viral and it was very well received among a lot of people in sport in and around. I saw even some players were sharing it, like black, you know, play, you know, people, black players in, in and around Major League Baseball. So it just did really well. And so it happened, a column op- opening, a column job opened up at the news. And so they brought me one more time and asked, hey, would, would you like to be a column this year? And I was like, okay, I will take a risk on the economic precarity of, of print media and your daily news specifically for the sake of being able to write columns about sports. And so that was, and that is, Mark, my long, but hope, my long and winding road, but hopefully entertaining. So we're going to get to your current job in a minute. But first, the New York Daily News. So that to me is, if, if you had told me when I was 10 years old that I was going to be talking to someone from the New York Daily News, that's the most prestigious paper in the world to 10-year-old me because of the sports section which is the sports section of Mike Lupica and Bill Madden and Frank Isola and Gary Myers and all these people and personalities. That's just in the sports section. New York Daily News, certainly it's big tabloid news coverage as well. You brought a different voice, though, a much different voice to what the New York Daily News was when in terms of covering sports. What was your approach there and what did you want your voice to be? For those of you who don't know, I'm, I'm from New York as well. Like, I grew up reading the Daily News. I put those two quarters down, 50 cents, to, to get it from my dad. And we, we, we read the film capsules and we read the sports scores and that. Yeah, I am I, definitely a geek. Except <laughs> the Daily News was interested in me in any way. But, but yeah, I, I would say there were many different voices I tried to have. Because I'm, I'm, I'm like, honestly, I was pretty raw. Like, I'm still pretty raw. Like, I did not, like I said, I didn't have the, the sort of formal, formal training in journalism or, or any sort of like, purely humanity kind of like college degree or anything. I was just kind of blogging sometimes, things I was proud of, and tweeting sometimes, things I was proud of. <laughs> um, and, and so I was at first just kind of like someone who, who had a lot of ideas about baseball and sports at large and tried to like write about them while also just kind of keeping the, uh, keeping the pages still, right? So it was the middle of the season. So I'd be, you know, hitting games, doing some beat writing or backup beat writing for the Yankees and Mets. But writers as Christy Ackert and the wonderful Disha those are. And, I, and, and, and so, so I think I would try and be able to spin blogs or, or quick analysis pieces about what was going on using the metrics I was comfortable with. Just kind of being able to make sure that people had a, I guess, an elevated understanding of what they were seeing when they, when they turned on the television and watched the game or went to the game, but in a way that was more straightforward than, say, the baseball perspectives or fan graphs. Not to say that the writing there is bad, but rather that there's an assumption of a level of competency with the numbers and data. And so I was trying to make, I tried, right, exactly. So I just tried to peel it back for my dad's reading. But also, again, I had lots of ideas about stuff beyond the game, but still intersecting into the game. So I tried to, in uh, in all the games we were watching, and so my I was really grateful that the news gave me a lot of freedom with which to explore that stuff, to find the fourth angle and kind of anything and everything. And so I, I frequently would be writing about issues of race or 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 class or or whatever you have it, labor issues, et cetera, in baseball or in the sports. And so that was that was that was essentially the kind of approach on a subject matter 
while hopefully being witty, entertaining, humorous, and serious when I need to be, and sifting between, I guess, all of those kinds of moods to to leave you a little bit more informed about the game you're watching, but also perhaps the world you live in. Interrupting my interview with Bradford to tell you about another podcast worth listening to, Democracy in Danger. Join Will Hitchcock and Sivavad Yonathan as they interview brilliant guests who are helping them save government by the people, one episode at a time. All over the world, democracy is getting turned upside down. Populism, autocratic rule, and disinformation are short-circuiting deliberation and consensus. The process is broken. The consequence is dire. Learn what you can do about it. Find Democracy in Danger wherever you get your podcasts, or visit dindanger.org. Now back to the show. The world you live in certainly changing in many ways in the last 18 to 24 months, and you wrote from that perspective, a number of times, I want to comment on one, and we get your take on one of your pieces. Your One of your top pieces, the headline was, Baseball Let Unity Stand in the Way of Protest. Your lead was, Baseball's return from a pandemic immediately proved the limits of choreographed unity. You gave an example of a Yankees player, DJ LeMahieu, not kneeling, but putting his hand on Black players as they kneeled. And another player, Kyle Schwarber, wearing a Black Lives Matter hat and a Chicago Police Department cap at the same time. You invoked Martin Luther King. What would King say to Black athletes who praise their teammates even when they won't join them in action? You also cited the WNBA walkout as a better example. This piece won an award. What were you trying to do with that article? Yeah, I was just extremely angry. <laughs> <laughs> and I was trying to get down my, my anger. It was, a, it was like it was probably a series of pieces that were happening around that time that summer. So a little backdrop for that is that my confidence was pretty low at the end of 2019. Because again, there's a new job. I was raw. I had received a piece amount of phrase, but I received some you know pretty critical you know feedback as well. And and so I was I was learning and everything. And so I but even more than that was that I was very frustrated with how a lot of people in, in these press circles were treating me. Lots of side eyes and shade and, you know, and rude comments and, and the like. Very kind, a lot of very condescending people. I was, in sports media can be a beast, unfortunately. And, and it's very, and, and I was like, I was pretty down on myself for all those reasons. And, but something kind of like clicked, I would say. One was that like, I really tried, one of the, the feedbacks I, feedback, piece of feedback I got, which was, again, a, a very constructive one from my coworker, Disha Tozar, was to really grow as a reporter. She's like, you could, she's like, you could write, but everybody could write. And it's not the first time I heard that, but it was really good to hear from her, right? And so, and so I really tried to focus on that. So a lot of my, even my essays and stuff had more of a reporter component to it and all that. And, I, and doing that kind of stuff had given me a lot of confidence, you know, in the early part of the year, you know, early first half of the year that like, okay, I actually belong here, right? And then when the second is the thing is frankly the the death of George Floyd and kind of piercing into all into everything and, and of course this column that you, you referenced and not just George Floyd's death death which made me angry and grieve me and all that but seeing how miserable that commentary was among in, in much of the sports writing world and also how miserable teams were handling this. And that was like, in a weird way, it was like, it was really frustrating and angering because like, I wish like, that our press corps, that the sports teams I follow and society, I guess, was better and not just kind of like pan either pandering to a need to prove to consumers that they weren't racist by having some sort of like terrible Black Lives Matter statement or, or just kind of being, you know, 
racist to be silent and, and seeing all that made me like, okay, no, I really, when I'm seeing like some of the folks who were shading me, like in, in, in <laughs> press circles, I'm like, okay, nah, I, I, I definitely belong here because I can do something that they can't. And I could also do a lot of things they can as well as they can too. So I, so I was really upset. I started writing a lot about ways that I felt like sports and baseball, especially were mishandling the racial justice uprising and, and, and the pandemic. And I felt a lot of that connected that, that opening, those opening couple of days in Major League Baseball, where you saw like all these this pop and circumstance and this big unity kneel or unity, I guess, unity demonstration that some, some teams kneel, some teams help, some teams different, where everyone was holding like this like black rope around, around the, around the, di- the diamond with Major League Baseball in full support of it. But what tangible action to what was being done to create the kind of world where George Floyd wouldn't die, I didn't see that. And that really, and so that upset me because I felt like I, I and everyone else who was, you know, watching was getting played. And so that was the, uh, that was the impetus for writing that, that column. And I just kind of felt like it was, it was so, it was so ridiculous. It was so transparently foolish. And it was, and it was very reflective of the country you live in where, where this was happening and every kind of sort of corporate and capitalism entity and, and using this this recent sort of national mood swing towards racism is bad again to position themselves as, as woke sort of brands rather than truly advancing, I think, right, these righteous causes. And so the righteous causes that people that let people to march in the streets for like days on end or weeks on end all summer. And so anyway, I, I, that's kind of where I was at, man. And I wanted, I wanted consistency. I wanted honesty. I wanted transparency. I wanted something real. I wasn't seeing it. And, uh, and that's why I, I wrote the way I did that day. You wrote out of a, a sense of frustration and you wrote to articulate a viewpoint essentially that you didn't feel was coming across, I guess, if we were going to, if we were going to sum it up. Yeah. Uh, all right. So that's not the only piece where you did that. There are a couple of, and I wanted to uh, discuss those too. You wrote a piece in 2019 about Jay-Z's partnership with the NFL and the hypocrisy of that when measured against past things that Jay-Z had said, written, sung about. All of this against the backdrop of Colin Kaepernick, the football quarterback, being out of a job in the NFL. I'm, I'm looking at the piece here. Sean Carter is worth nearly a billion dollars. I paid $30 more than the minimum on my credit card this month. Carter and I have different perspectives. We're in the same skin, but we're not in the same world. To him, there are a few problems not solved by throwing money at them, and the NFL's dollars spend the same as anyone else's. It doesn't work like that for everyone even when they share the same hue. And you related within that piece as well, the personal experience of being in an Uber that decided to try and evade police and how the officers oh, God. as accomplices <laughs> rather than passengers and made you put your hands on the car, on your, on the car, but changed as soon as you showed them a corporate identification, your HBO work card. Corporate money talked, but only after the damage was done. You write very emotionally, and we've just talked about it with this previous piece, this one um, is at a little bit of a different level. What is the process of reliving something that happened to you in your writing like for you? Oh, I mean, that, that situation was extraordinarily stressful. One thing that you didn't reference was, but, was, but is in the column, was that like the officers had their guns drawn, fingers on the trigger, while my friend and I were in that. And so that kind of stays with you. <laughs> and I was one of the things I was very frustrated about was like not feeling feeling like I didn't really have a, an effective outlet for it when I had first heard about it. We're gonna we're gonna blame you, obviously the police, but but again, to, towards one end. And so what I was I, I found the 
I found the relationship between race and class in Jay-Z's life and mine pretty interesting parallels, even though our classes are very different. Because the because I like I like like you said and in, in, as you you know read back read back my article I mean I it was absolutely the fact that me and my friend were black that <laughs> I believe that we got pulled over right and not only pulled over or it's just they pulled over because because the, the Uber driver was tripping right but like, the reason why they drew their guns rather than just kind of like accept that the, the two people in the back seat of a guy with an Uber like light and that um and a clear taxi license plate and all that was driving passengers and not like I don't know gangbangers or whatever the heck, the heck those, those officers were thinking in the plain clothes. But but it was the fact that I was attached to money in some way, right? Probably in part the way I speak. I grew up middle class. Like it's just a fact of, fact of my life. Some of the cultural markers, I guess, probably helped. And especially that I had the ability to show that I have a white collar job. And my as, as did my friend, who's also a coworker. Like the fact that we had white collar jobs allowed us to essentially speed up the process if not totally eliminate the process of being trapped, I don't know, arrested or, or jailed or whatever, because we were able to do that. And that is, that, that, that angers me because I, like, I still feel conflicted about that. Well, not entirely because I'm kind of alive, but, but I feel, you know, I feel angry about it because it shouldn't be that way. There was not my, the, the, the fact that I had this, this job or whatever should not have been in any way a identifier to the to the officers that I was safe. It should have been that the same way, like it, it, my humanity in of itself should not have, should have been enough to to not escalate the situation that to that level, but it was. And and that's the I guess the difference between myself and Jay Z is that I seem to be more cognizant understanding of that. Not to say that he isn't entirely, but but he certainly was that day when he said that we are past the point of kneeling, which again, which, which was Colin Kaepernick's uh, symbolic choice to bring attention to the reality of police violence against black folks and folks in general, but, you know, especially, especially African-Americans. Like when, um, you know, but the fact that he said that we're beyond that point and we just need to like work on, I don't know, corporate synergy or whatever the heck he was saying, like that showed a, a, that he thought it was good to, <laughs> to throw money that way. And I'm like, nah. That I, I I can't I can't go that far, and and it's not it's not a true show of of solidarity or support or or an effective route towards the kind of change that we need to pursue this sort of capitalistic racial progress. It's not you know really I, I don't think it's anything of sort. And so that was that motif kind of was as I was writing like it just made it a lot more it, it made it, it made sense of some things I experienced. Another piece, this one that you've written more recently, that piece was from a couple of years ago. This more recently, a profile of the fencer. Curtis McDowell for GQ. He's a black fencer in a white conservative sport. He's both loud and thoughtful. He makes references to loving the art of war. And he's very emotional. He's, he brings, I guess, a, um, I don't, I don't know if this is the exact way I would describe it, but an NBA kind of flair to his fencing in terms of celebrating points and things of that nature. And the description in those pieces, in that piece in particular, was, I felt like, highly effective. His signature move marries his athleticism, aggression, and deceptiveness. Curtis's voice has notes of nostalgia and amusement, a wistful dead-ass bro punctuating every hair-raising hood testimony, along with a beaming smile not even his paper mask can cover. Did what, what from your background taught you descriptiveness of that nature? 
I don't know, man. I just be reading. I tried to take as many notes as I could when I first met him in person. But uh, like that was, I really do enjoy. I love reading good books or good magazine articles. And I think the more I grow in my career, I, I like I I read it more like studiously in a way of being like, hmm, I like what they did there. How did they like ask that question to get that response? What must they have been thinking or or seeing or smelling to the kind of description there? That that that's become a process of mine when I when I read. Um, still for enjoyment for sure, but also to learn from from, from things from, from things and writers and, and approaches. What is it like to write for GQ where you're able to do you're, you're essentially able to do a column within a feature too, because certainly your personal take was intermixed with your the way that this piece ran. Yeah, it's, it's, it's honestly, man, it's the kind of writing I love to do most. It combined it, it combines the ability to express my values, the ability to argue my values and, and the opportunity to like do some deep reporting to talk to a lot of people and just learn learn, learn about something either something I do know already well I know well but just want to further measure myself in or something I don't know at, at all like fencing like fencing and fencing and this story of Curtis was kind of like the perfect marriage of both right because I don't know anything about fencing and I make that point clearly I know nothing I still, I'm watching it now and paying attention and I'm still writing about it but I still don't know that much but I do know what it's like to be black and to be presumed angry or arrogant. I have my confidence mistaken. Mistaken is actually too, too, gen- too generous a word for some folks. Mistaken, but often just frankly presumed as, as pride or, or like in a negative sense, as some sort of like sinful sort of haughtiness. And that, and so when I saw that running through Curtis's life, and I met him over the phone anyway, about a year ago, because I, I was receiving a tip about some issues of racial abuse in, and, and racist language from a prominent fencing coach in the world of, in the world of fencing actually at St. John's University. And uh, when I spoke to Curtis and he was telling about all the nonsense he deals with beyond that, like, it was like, oh man, yo, I, I just want to, I want to stay in touch with this dude because I feel like, I feel like there's something there that could be explored a lot more. And when the time is right, like we should keep it connect. So that's what happened. I did. I hit him up. I stayed in touch with him a little bit. And then I hit him up earlier this year. I was like, yo, I want to do a story for you. I think, I think the place to do it it would be GQ because of all the things that you just mentioned, or we both just mentioned, I guess, about being able to combine all the different styles and everything. Frankly, the visual element as well, having a, a fantastic photos, shout out to Dana Scruggs, incredible photographer. And, and yeah, it just, it's just kind of, it's the kind of place that will let your story breathe and that, that might help people appreciate you and introduce you, you know, to, to, a, to a whole new set of folks outside of this very insular community. I will be posting the link to each of the articles that we've referenced in the show notes. How do you make your sources comfortable with you? This is a question that I've probably asked 25, 30 people in doing this podcast. <laughs> I'm curious how you go about it. Yeah, I'm still learning every day, honestly. Like, <laughs> definitely plenty of awkward, you know, exchanges in, in clubhouses and stuff. And when I started this kind of credentialed writing career, but I, I think, honestly, I just try and be kind and fair is the ultimate thing. I, I think I'm a naturally gregarious person. I, I like talking to people, hearing what they have to say. And even though I'm friendly, the goal is not to befriend. The goal is to tell true stories. And, and I think being as clear and straightforward as possible helps mitigate some of the blowback from having to ask a sharper question about things. And so that is kind of the, the approach I give. You show them a real person that, that I care that it's not just about what they do on the quarter. And, uh, but also, and I guess it's the sports world really, but because but, uh, I, I do reporting and elsewhere. But, but yeah, like that I care more about their performance. I care about them as people, but also like 
yeah, that my, my job is, is to find the truth wherever where and so that I guess the, the help set that boundary appropriately. And and similarly with sure, you know, for stuff outside the sports, but especially when we're talking to people who I think are going through more trauma is to just try and be patient with them <laughs> to like just let things breathe sometimes. I'm grateful that I'm not on a sort of a daily turn at this moment, like I was a daily news where it ends. I can, if someone doesn't respond to me immediately, give them a little, a little more time than I otherwise do, and and of course explain the purposes, which is which is even for, which is to tell a true and thorough account of what happened, and so that means talking to the heroes and the villains, everyone in between, and so uh, like when, you know, when I find when I when I when I when I point when I point out the importance of being thorough about everything and even giving a side that may be framed pretty negatively in the course of the piece, there some people are more likely to speak even in that, even in those situations. So. All right, let's take it full circle and come back, come back to baseball, right? For business insider. You recently did a piece about a pitcher for the Milwaukee Brewers. Devin Williams inscribed black lives matter on a pitcher's mound in Milwaukee in 2020. He was the only black player on the Brewers An inning later it was gone. The opposing pitcher was someone uh, in the baseball world. People certainly familiar with outside, maybe not as much, Trevor Bauer, um, essentially the easiest way to describe him in a couple of words is baseball's bad guy at the moment. You won't go (laughs) as far as to say that he did it, but he did, that he wiped it out. This could have been a very basic piece. You went a little further with it. It it became an investigation. What would you like to say about how you put that piece together? That's one of your more more recent pieces. Right. I mean, yeah, Trevor Bauer sucks as a human, per- as a human being, to be clear. <laughs> and, he, and he sucks before the stuff that people know he sucks about now, sucks about now which are, are these multiple domestic violence and abuse allegations, yep. well, which he doesn't even expressly deny doing, like hurting these different women, but he said that they were consensual, essentially. Yeah, so it's been kind of the, the argument that's been proffered by him and his attorneys, and also that, the, that, that these girls like to have sex with lots of, lots of different other guys and other baseball players and stuff. That's been another part of his defense, which is a nasty defense to make, <laughs> to be clear, um, whether he's innocent or not. And he, I don't believe that he's innocent on that front. But anyway, but before that, he was he was known for saying lots of racist and sexist stuff. And and clearly every ism and obia, like, was <laughs> stuff that he's tweeted about and in very frustrating ways. But because baseball is a culturally very white and Bauer was, yeah, at the very least, very available and open, like, he kind of got a pass to that most of the time. And I was like thinking honestly about how to write and report about this in the way that it would be legible. And, uh, and, and so parallel, Devin Williams, who, who was a rookie that wrote the BLM on the mound last year, he was, he's pretty new to the game. And, and, he seemed, and I, I really admire him taking that stance, the fact that he's like the only black dude on, that, on the active roster at that point for his team, the Milwaukee Brewers. That must have been really hard and really scary to, to do that after uh, Jake Blake was nearly killed. And yet he uh, did that. And, and, uh, and, so, and so as beautiful as it was, it was so frustrating to see that, that he had been, it had been erased. And so I'm like, man, I want to like, I want to dig into this. And without clear forensic evidence, I realized that this was kind of an investigation. You know what I mean? And so I thought that would be interesting to, interesting to read, interesting to kind of like go through that journey of how I was thinking about this, why I was thinking about why I'm so motivated about this, which I think I try to convey about the story is that there is frankly some personal stakes. I like people who stand for black lives and I don't like <laughs> when people oppose that. And, and so I wanted to like, you know, and so I, I just kind of wanted to lead, lead the reader along in that way to look at all of the circumstantial evidence and some of the sentiment around the league around like why, how that Black Lives Matter inscription on the mound could have been erased or defaced or whatever you want to call it. 
it really was a very clever, clever approach to it. And that for, as I said, for Business Insider, which is the, the group that you're now writing for, can you just give us a little bit of a, a perspective on uh, Business Insider and what you're doing for them? Yeah. So as you mentioned at the top of this, I'm an investigative writer, mostly like longer features type, type stories. And a lot of that, I, I think, is an extension of stuff I was doing in the Daily News. I was, like I said earlier in this podcast, I was working a lot towards building myself as a reporter. And I did a whole lot of investigative pieces for the New York Daily News. And so I wanted to just do that, but also have a space that was a little more supportive of it. Not that the New York Daily News, the, the, excuse me, the New York Daily News was unsupportive, but the, the, the kind of constraints and demands of daily journalism meant that like you had to like just kind of keep things tabled to the side. And I still do. I still have so many tips and leads and 10% done so that because there's a lot of evil stuff going around the world and people keep telling me it. So I keep trying to write and pursue as much as I can. But but yeah, like Insider gives a, has, an, has an investigations desk and they give a lot of time towards to let you like dig and dig and dig and dig and dig until you have the story. And so they they can they continue to encourage me like, hey, we want you pursuing sports stories. We also want you doing other stuff, which is exactly what I wanted to do. And and you know, my sports stories aren't just sports stories. They're often emanations of, of of life beyond the game, beyond the box score. So uh, being so be, so that was a very very attractive proposition and one I was happy to try and pursue. And so it's been a it's been a really good. It's only been a few months. I don't think I don't think it's a honeymoon season, but like I am enjoying it. I can't say that much. All right, two questions left. So I went into the press box at City Field. This was two months ago. And I looked around and it was, quite frankly, a lot of white male faces. It was almost entirely white male faces. I think there was one woman reporter. I think it was Disha from the New York Daily News. And there were no black baseball writers there. I guess looked into this. The number of black baseball beat reporters is small. The number of black national baseball writers is almost non-existent. Not to try to solve all the world's problems here, but how is something like this going to change? <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, and whatever that black national writer thing, whatever number that was, it went down when I quit. No, I mean, as far as I guess the question that, as far as your question about Good. how to pursue, I guess, you know, how to improve this, this situation we're in as far as the lack of, the biggest thing, frankly, is just to hire us. That is the best in the most straightforward way possible. Don't say that they don't exist. Don't say the pipeline's too weak, perpetuating a problem, a self-assembly prophecy, I think is actually the phrase I'm looking for, where if you if you just kind of like take that fatalistic mindset, but look other places, look on the internet, yo. Like there, there are people out there, not, not as much as it should be, but, but there are more like who are writing really interesting things, but they just don't have credential or pass. And those folks should be getting hired. And that was, and that was me, again, like, I didn't, I came from an extremely non-traditional background, but it was very clear to, to the people who hired me like that, from, from, I guess, from interviewing me a few times as well, but like in some of my past work, but also, again, my tweets <laughs> that I had ideas that were, that were worth expanding into short and long form. And so just doing that, <laughs> it will go a long way. And, and you can find more diverse writing, I, I believe, online than, than in the sort of, and, and when I say online, I mean like in the blog world, than in the sort of more standard traditional publication houses that are out there, because that's it. I mean, the other thing is, uh, other thing I think really matters is I think being willing to, for those who can't hire, right, we don't in any position to that, to refer folks like who, who are, who, who come from a different, but still net needed background to, to job, like, it, it means a whole lot when you're able to, even if you're not getting the person signing a check to, to go and be, when you see a job interview, be like, yo, 
you should apply for that. Or, hey, I know the person there. Like we are so many of us, so many people of color who are not in, in metal or something or Syracuse, but like we don't have the networks. And, and so what invite us into, invite us into those, into those networks in part by, of course, you know, encouraging this rich job, but also making those sorts of like social and relational connections. I think though, I think that I go back to that Grantland party that I went to, where, which is a lot of fun and everything, but you know, not that many black people, frankly, but I made connections relationally and not everyone gets to do that. And, and so to whatever degree that you can invite and encourage people to participate in, in, in networks that you already have that may have come from either your, your work experience or your college experience or whatever can really, I think that could really make a difference for keeping someone in the back of their mind that the back of a high, of, of someone with hiring capacities mind about a fresh or different base that's um, a good, that is also need needed and important that's a good idea absolutely all right last question we ask the same question to everyone we give uh, the, our guests a chance do you have a journalist or a journalism organization that you would like to salute beyond the ones that you already have because you've already shouted out a very good number of people <laughs> yeah man i want to shout out jay casting i think he's one of the most phenomenal writers out there. Like I'm biased because like we write about a lot of similar things at times, but and and he and he's been very kind to me in the past. But I, I really do like I'm a geek for like Jay's writing. He's, he's, so Jay Caspian King, he recently just joined as as a newsletter writer, full circle, <laughs> but this time for the New York Times, <laughs> not for his uh, Squarespace blog or Mailchimp or whatever. And so uh, he's, but, he, but, but he's one of the most versatile thinkers. He, and he's one of those dudes who I think blends reporting and analysis extraordinarily well. He questions his answers. He, he's, there's a lot, there's a lot of, he's very cocky on Twitter, but he's very, but he's very humble in the way he writes. And I, I think it's something that a lot of people can emulate the way he pursues, pursues his, his work. And uh, yeah, Jay, Jay's, Jay's the homie. So. Nice. Blending reporting, writing, uh, reporting and writing well, uh, as you do as well. Bradford William Davis, thank you for joining us. All right. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.